Ladies and gentlemen, in the world of chess, few names have risen with such eloquence and insight, both on the 64 squares and off it. Our guest today is a chess prodigy achieving the title of international master at the tender age of 14, and then ascending to the rank of grandmaster. But his prowess doesn't end with just playing. He's an educator, a writer, and has one of the most insightful voices in modern chess commentary. His ability to articulate complex positions and strategies in a way that's accessible to both novices and seasoned players alike has garnered him admiration and respect worldwide. Whether you know him from his Twitch streams, YouTube lessons, or insightful commentary during high-level tournaments, you're bound to learn something new from him. Please join me in welcoming the brilliant Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky. Daniel, welcome, welcome, welcome. Wow, Christian, that that was an incredible uh, introduction. And uh, for, when I actually record YouTube videos, the, I think the hardest part for me are like the first 30, 45 seconds. You know, it's like air, airplane pilots say the hardest thing is getting the plane off the ground. And that was uh, incredible. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. I'm so flattered to be the recipient of these compliments. And uh, I think your podcast is amazing. So it's it's really a great honor. Well, when we first started the podcast, you were definitely one of the um, top names uh, that we had ideas to invite in terms of uh, guests. So finally, we got you. Um, yeah, welcome to the show. It's uh, It's been a crazy few years in the world of chess, but let's uh, talk about a little bit your... Uh, about your beginnings in in the world of chess i have to say uh, the, the first time i think i heard about you was you played the tournament in bulgaria uh, right after you launched your book which was quite crazy because you were 14 at the time uh, i believe 2010 or something like that and um i was like okay who writes books at 14 that's kind of insane tell us a bit about your first few steps in the world of chess you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use my experience with writing as kind of a segue uh, to, to introduce you to my, to my chess beginnings. Uh, I remember liking to write be, even before I learned how to play chess. Like for my birthday, when I was four, when I was five, I, the only thing I would ask for would be, would be notebooks. I wanted, you know, fancy notebooks and I wanted pens. And even before I knew how to write, um, as already many years afterward, my mom showed me these notebooks that my parents had saved and they're filled with just like, you know, lines and markings. So I would fill up notebooks even before I knew how to write. So when I actually learned how to write, it was it was paradise. I wrote down everything. You know, I had a diary. Um, uh, any anything that I did in chess when I started to play, I would write that down. Uh, so I, I think my love for writing uh, predates my love for chess. Now, in terms of when I learned chess. You know, it's one of those things where I think I remember very clearly uh, the first, the day when I learned how to play chess. But then uh, when I was in college, I, I read or I heard from my psychology professor that there's this concept where we think uh, that we remember where we were on big days. I think it's called a flashbulb memory or something like you think you know where you were on 9-11, but it's like proven that a lot of that is false memory that you filled in yeah. because that concept is so meaningful to you. What I remember is that my brother was the first to teach me the game. My brother, Alan, is four and a half years older than me. Uh, he learned chess uh, at around eight or nine. And I remember that he taught me the rules of the game at a birthday party. And I even think that I remember the table. It was like a little outdoor area on some farm. And uh, we played a few games. 
obviously he he crushed me. I mean, he, his level at that time was maybe like a thousand or eleven hundred. He he'd gotten a few lessons. Um, and you know, I don't think that there was anything dramatic in my early chess upbringing. I think it was pretty pretty pedestrian. Uh, my dad, uh, who in uh, back in in the USSR before he immigrated in 1979, was a candidate master. Uh, so he he was an integral figure in my early chess upbringing. Uh, he took over early training duties. I, I don't like remember a clear time when I fell in love with chess early on. I think it was sort of a gradual thing where chess for, replaced the other battery of post-school activities. Like I really liked Lego. I was, believe it or not, a pretty normal kid. You know, I played Monopoly with my brother. I, you know, I wasn't already sitting in the basement at age seven. You know, pouring over Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual. It took it took a while. Um, I think the first tournament I played was around uh, 2003, so I was maybe seven and a half. Um, and and I remember some of those er earliest games that I played. They were at the Berlin Game Chess Club. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, Berlin Game is a city that's uh, about 15 minutes from San Francisco. It had a chess club, and so all of my earliest tournaments were at the Berlin Game Chess Club. What I do remember is getting my first trophy. Um, I think at around age eight, I managed to score you know third or fourth place at one of those local Berlin Game tournaments. And I got this trophy, but I was sobbing. I was inconsolable because I had lost the final game and forfeited first place. But uh, I had gotten this very small trophy, and I still remember my parents in the background uh, celebrating this achievement while my head is on the table, and I'm like, I'm <laughs> sobbing. Um, but nothing made me as emotional as chess. Um, you know, it, I, I wasn't crying at many other things, but I was crying when I lost the chess game. At that point, my parents got me my first chess coach. He was a local uh, Russian master in, in the Bay Area. We, we started training. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I don't remember the exact point, Christian, when, like, I recognized that, okay, I'm good and I need to be doing this. I think that whole thing is a myth. You just sort of gradually get better and better. Yeah. And around age eight and a half or nine, I think that's when I started playing tournaments at the Mechanics Institute Chess Club, which is a larger chess club in San Francisco. That would play an integral role in my chess development. I'm sure we'll get back to the role that the mechanics played. Uh, but to close off my, you know, intro to chess, you know, that's when I started playing national tournaments. And, and my first international tournament was the under 10 World Youth Chess Championship in Belfort, France, uh, in 2005. So I was nine years old and, uh, I managed to get fifth place. I remember that, that tournament. I, I was there as well. It, it was one of the worst organized tournament. tournaments Horrible. ever. <laughs> what do you remember about that tournament? Um, well, first of all, we were busing before the rounds, like three, four hours before the rounds, be because we also had to eat lunch close to the playing venue. Um, for whatever reason at the hotel, we yep. were, and we didn't have lunch or, or or dinner, which was extremely weird. And 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 those lunches, dinners had a thirty minute wait uh, in terms of like a line to get your food. So that was one of the horrible parts of it. Another one, uh, I was hearing that a lot of people had cockroaches in 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 their rooms. And uh, I don't know, Fabi, were you at that tournament? No, I, so I, I I have a memory of this, but I did miss out on it. My last World Youth Championship was two thousand four, which was pretty well organized oh. from what I remember. But after I moved to Europe with my family, I remember reading an article in Chess Life about the, the 2005 um, <laughs> World Championship by, I think it was Aviv Friedman who, who wrote, I think he was probably the coach of, uh, of the US, um, US squad. And, and it was a pretty scathing review of the organization. Uh, I included like really tiny rooms and like barely being able to fit in the shower because everything was so small. Yes. 
Uh, luckily, I missed out on on it since it sounds like it was pretty terrible. <laughs> and most of my memories are like relatively um, uh, relatively good from those World Youth days. Speaking of I, those, I... actually, uh, <laughs> you, you Dania are like what three years younger than Fabi? Well, was he one of uh, let's say the mo model players that you were looking up to when you were growing up? Definitely. I mean, I, I, I remember Fabi as long as I remember, you know, as long as I have memories. <laughs> so like I, Fabi was definitely on my radar. Um, and I remember when, when, when you moved uh, to Europe, Fabiano, like I was already following top level chess at that time. Uh, so definitely I have like three very, very quick, I promise I'll be brief, three very quick representative stories from the, that world youth. Uh, but I just want to get it out because I've never shared these before. The first, if that's okay, Christian. But oh, I, for I, sure. I want to yeah, get logged yeah, in. Yeah. I'll be quick. The, the first is uh, the fact that it was, it was okay, I'm, I'm American, so I'm going to speak in Fahrenheit. Uh, it was, oh, I think it was something like over 90 degrees Fahrenheit on certain rounds in the playing hall. Uh, one kid even fainted and, and had to be transported. So for, for European viewers, that's, I don't know, 35, 40 degrees. Yeah, I'm <laughs> surrounded by people who have spent a lot of time in Europe. So I apologize if, if that's wrong. Um, so it, uh, during the closing ceremony, I was there with my mom, but my dad came and my brother came for the last couple of rounds. And then we went to Paris afterward for a vacation. My mom filmed a group of kids. I mean, this isn't funny, but, but it is, uh, there was a vending machine that, that got broken and there was a group of kids fighting over the cold drinks in the vending machine in the closing ceremony because it was so hot. Um, then the second story is that there was one round where uh, the bus, the official bus that was carrying the American delegation from the hotel, from the crappy hotel yes. uh, to the playing hall, it, it was, it, the bus was late. It was rain, it was pouring, cats and dogs. And Aviv Friedman, uh, and I like Aviv, he's, he's, a, he's a firebrand, you know, he stands up for, for the American team. And so when we arrived at the playing hall, they had started our clocks and Aviv runs in, he was going to come to blows with the chief arbiter. And he says, if you don't, reset the clocks right now for every american player i'm gonna <laughs> and they did and they did they they restarted the clocks and i got the full complement of whatever 90 minutes that i didn't need uh to play that particular game the last story is that when my dad came um i begged him not to do this but uh he cut out a picture a a picture of the official organizer jean paul Touzet, who i think almost went to jail after the tournament he cut out that little cutout pinned it on his lapel and wrote shame thief uh like in big letters and was walking around uh the playing hall and people were like taking photos of him obviously because i'm i'm extremely shy and like i don't want to attract any attention to myself or the naroditsky clan i was begging him not to do it but now <laughs> i look back on it and i think that's really funny and i think that was a pretty admirable move definitely uh not the greatest experience to have in your first international tournament but i think i took it pretty well i was a, i was a kid and you know as a kid uh, you take things in stride. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have uh, those points of reference, right? Compare it to something much better. And also you don't really care about it. Yeah, you're there to play chess. You're there to have fun. I mean, interact with your peers. And that kind of takes priority over this type of negative thoughts. So in hindsight, it's still kind of funny to realize how bad it was. But at the moment, it didn't feel that bad either. Fabi, what was your uh, worst story, let's say, from a world championship, world youth championship? Uh, from a world youth championship, I don't have any bad stories. I, I do remember that, um, I think it was in Oropesa del Mar. I think maybe it was 2000, but mm -hmm. I could be could be wrong on the year. Were you there in that one, Dania? I was there. Yeah. I, I remember Oropesa Wait, del Mar. Which year was well. this? 2000? 
I think so. I was still learning how to zip my pants up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so there were some, um, some slot machines and I was like, I was a little, okay, I'm going to make a confession. I was a little thief as a kid. I would steal small things, but I really wanted to play slots. So I stole my dad's coins and I ended up making a profit. But when he found out it was like Euro coins, I probably stole like, I don't know, 15 euros off of him. Like nothing, <laughs> it wasn't much. But when he found out, I got, I didn't get my ass kicked, but it was, it was close. He was pissed at me. Uh, but I don't know if that's like a bad memory or just like a funny memory um, of like the stupid stuff I did as a kid. I, I'm actually curious uh, for, for both of you guys, because I have like clear memories of who my main competitors were in those like in my sections, because I only really looked at my competitors from my section, right? Like we mm -hmm. looked at who the stronger kids were, but you didn't really have to worry about them. But who were the kids who you had to compete with or, or who you played a lot of times in, in your sections? I'll let you start on that one, Daniel. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a great point about, you know, when you play World Use, and, and I did end up playing, I played 2005, 2006, 2007, I won under 12. And then I played 2008 in Vietnam. And then I played 2013. I was already a GM. I just become a GM and I played under 18 in online. Um, but it's so true that when you're playing like under 12, under 14, what's happening in the under 18 is almost like, uh, I don't know, it's like when you're in middle school and you don't give a crap what's happening in, in high school or you don't give a crap what's happening. You give a crap what's happening in your little territory, in your little world. Um, the the players whom I played quite a bit in the in those world use, I remember the, the unfortunately, very unfortunately, the late Ivan Bukovshin uh, was a big competitor for me. He later became a GM uh, and, and tragically passed away very young. Uh, Ilya Nizhnik uh, was someone who... Who, who was present in those circles as well. He was the top seed in the year that I won uh, in, in, in 2007 in Antalya, Turkey. I was 11th seed. My FIDE rating was 2120, and Ilya was 2377. I remember his rating very clearly because he was the top seed, and my mouth fell open when I saw that number as a kid. How how can you be 2370 at age 12? Now, of course, you know, 2370 at age 12, you know, that's not going to put you in the top 100. <laughs> uh, but back then, it was it was a big deal. So there was Ilya Nizhnik, there was Bukovshin. Uh, I remember uh, after, this is not exactly on theme, and then I'll pass it off to you, Christian, but I remember uh, doing this little research project. When I won uh, under 12 in 2007, I got the FM title. But I went on Wikipedia and I searched uh, all of the winners of the previous uh, World Youth Chess Championship uh, under 12, and I, and I searched their, their current fates. And I found that something like, you know, 90% of them had ended up becoming grandmasters. And that brought a smile to my face. And I'm like, mm. man, the statistics are in my favor. But because I, I always had confidence issues as a kid, and I still struggle with that, but as a kid, it was really debilitating. And I, I'm sure we can get into that uh, later when we talk about my chess progression. Um, but I remember that that really got me a lot of solace. I'm like, man, you know, it's like every time you get on an airplane, you've got like a one in 31 million chance and that comforts you. Uh, I was like, man, the likelihood is that this this bodes well for my chess career. Yeah, no, for me. Um, and I remember Ilya as well. My dad very often at these European championships, uh, he was uh, accompanying me, but he was also an arbiter. Uh, he's an international arbiter. He, he, he did a lot of these youth competitions. And um, at some point he was an arbiter at Ilya's section and Ilya was probably winning I, I think he won 
uh, that particular year. But every single day, every single game, he was coming with this uh, plush toy. Bear. With his bear. bear. Yes, yes, the teddy bear. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Very funny, uh, <laughs> very funny guy. Like he, they, they were inseparable, uh, the teddy bear and Ilya. So quite a... <laughs> quite a discrepancy from what you see right now from Ilya, you know, this grown up man living in the United States and so on. And you remember, I, I vividly remember him with the teddy bear. Uh, for me, I would say in the World Youth Championships, I remember that 2008 in Vietnam, Le Quang was there. I actually tied for mm -hmm. first in that one, Le Quang, Shanklin. Oh, you were there. I was there, Shanklin yeah. got third that year. Shanklin got, got third and I think he beat Le Quang in the last round. Correct. So it, it was one through fifth. Uh, we all tied for first in terms of points and by tie breaks, uh, Shanky got uh, third. He always claims he was a world champion on that one, if, I, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I can claim that I was a world champion in that one as well. I'm not 100% sure how it goes. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, 2007 Antalya, I remember that's the one I won. Um, Salgado was there Ivan Salgado from Spain. He, I haven't heard much about him in recent years, but he was a mainstay in, in all these competitions for sure for I me. I think he still plays, but I'm not sure how actively. I played right. him a few times. Uh, he he was he was around 20, like he was a very strong grandmaster. He probably was 80 uh, or maybe a bit less than that. 2600, like he, he made it 26, 26, 40. Now he's a bit lower than that. I think he's mostly coaching nowadays, I would assume. That's my mm -hmm. guess, I haven't seen him. Uh, play a lot of tournaments, but yeah, those were those were the guys, especially ah, um, Nguyen also, Nguyen and Nguo Trong Son. Uh, that was a big mainstay in the world championships as well for us. And uh, Onishchuk, not our Onishchuk, um, I think his name is Vladimir Onishchuk. Yeah, I don't know from it's from... like when you see Kasparov and you get excited and then you're like, oh darn, it's Sergey Kasparov. <laughs> right, oh, right, Kasparov right. wrote a book on the Scandinavian. Oh wait, S. Kasparov. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I remember, I think this was at uh, the tournament that you were uh, in as well, Fabi. In was it Oropesa or Peniscola or something like that? I don't remember. Wait, exactly. is that in 2003? You said. Uh, I don't remember the exact year. I remember Lequan in 2003. That was the one. Maybe, maybe that was one of them. Uh, Lequang was was one of the main competitors in that one. Um, Onishchuk was another one. And I think you were playing under 10, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay, yeah. Then maybe that was Noropesa del Mar in that case. Oropesa del Mar but might have been. It's yes. interesting to look back and you, you have some guys who were like super successful in the world youth who became uh, top players in the world. Or like I remember Ding, who became world champion in the end, uh, playing in the under 12 as well. And there's some guys who were like absolute monsters as kids, and then they kind of fell off on chess. Like I remember Tomasz Fedor, he was world youth champion, and, uh, and oh, yeah. I don't think he like pursued chess too much after that. Um, I remember, and then like mm -hmm. some other. Even I remember there were two Chinese players who were absolute monsters. One was Ding, and the other one, I, his name I can't remember, but he was also winning world youth, and and he never played again. <laughs> And while Ding took a break after that and then came back and like immediately became 2700. So, so it's kind of interesting. I get sometimes maybe interest fades with teenage years or, or who knows progression stalls, but it, it's interesting to look back on, on these, uh, these memories. Yeah. It's fascinating to me too. Yeah. Tom Tomash really got his foot in the faux door, uh, in those world views, <laughs> but yeah, but, but Ding's participation really rings a bell for me. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> sorry, I. I always no, that was a good one. conversation with stupid puns. That was a good one. Yeah, no, I um, liked it. I think I'm known for that at this point. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm like this in real life too. But I try I try to to you know, 
I try to read the room. Like if it's a serious conversation, I'm not necessarily gonna, you know, turn the funds up. But I think it's a it's it's a nice way to infuse, uh, you know, lightness in the commentary. Actually, but anyways, I to ask you that. Yeah, um, yeah. When Go it ahead. comes to your commentary, because uh, you're one of the most prominent uh, chess commentators, and you very often come up with these either puns, but also some like uh, some very funny sayings, which I've never heard before. Like sometimes I send them to Robert. Because I'm like, where, where is this a thing? Do people say this? And one of them was recently, it was like something about a swamp. Do you remember this? Yeah. And I, oh. and I looked everywhere. I'm like, is this a real saying? Because it sounded so bizarre. Um, I don't remember the one about a swamp. Um, it's yeah, my my sayings are kind of murky in my mind. Let me um, let me get it up. Like, like I, I thought it was I thought it was great. Now I'm also, curious. Um <laughs> As you're doing that, I'll, I'll mention briefly that some of the like sayings that I use, you know, like "Be still, my beating heart," or uh, I don't know, you know, "Biting on granite," they they come from different sources. You know, I do listen to a lot of like non-chess content. I have a lot of interest. I'm a history nerd, so some of these do come from like you know books or uh, documentary videos. Uh, some come from Russian. Like I sometimes will borrow a saying from Russian if I think it's translatable. For example. Uh, one saying that I shared recently was uh, killing sparrows with a cannon. Uh, and what that means is essentially originally what, okay, this is very nerdy like reference, but my dad taught me this saying when I was using the quadratic equation uh, to solve a, an equation that could be factored out. He's like, don't kill sparrows with a cannon. Like don't do something very complicated uh, in order to solve a very simple problem, you know? Um, and I was using that in the chess context to describe some crazy complicated combination when you can just win with a simple move. So that's another source, but Fabi, go ahead. I think, no, I, I, think I think it's great because it also, it, like, especially with commentary and if you're, if it's like covering an event where like these speech house championship events or something like that, where it's a bit more dynamic and fast paced, then it like infuses some kind of lightness into it, which is, which is fun. But the saying was cart, he was doing cartwheels in the swamp mm. and and I was like, "What? <laughs> who does cartwheels in the swamp? <laughs> what is that? Cartwheels in a swamp. I don't even, the scary thing is I don't even like, I can't even understand how I came up with it. That one I just came up with on my own. Um, sometimes <laughs> I, I really enjoy coming up with uh, unorthodox analogies. Like one analogy I was really proud of, and I think it didn't land uh, because I saw some YouTube comments and they're like WTF, but I was really proud of this one. Um, I was trying to illustrate how in a certain position you have to make a particular kind of move. It's like in the King's Indian, you have to put your pawn on a five and a knight on C five. And I've said something like not doing this is like coming into an Italian restaurant and not getting the fried calamari. Because in my experience, uh, fried calamari, at least in American Italian restaurants is like the appetizer that everybody likes. Yep. It's like, if you're there with a group of people, you know, as my brother told me, there's a saying like, there's nothing harder than ordering a pizza with six people. I want broccoli. I don't like pineapple. You know, I, I'm a vegetarian. So, you know, so but everybody likes like, fried calamari. Everybody likes fried calamari. <laughs> but I guess this is only accessible to such a niche group of people that most I think the instinct reaction for a lot of people is like, what is this analogy? But sometimes I wish people just pause to, like, understand where it came from, you know? Well, that would make sense, especially because I. I was going to like Italian restaurants with a group recently during this like chest nine LX and yeah, the one go-to starter is fried calamari. It's like, okay, nobody questions it. It's like, okay, we're going to order this. And then, we're going to get it. And yeah. it's usually kind of bad, but you know, it's usually too rubbery. <laughs> uh, calamari is one of those things. W once I had squid in Spain, 
you know, I couldn't I couldn't look look on on squid the same way because it, the way that it's cooked in Spain is an art form. You know, food in food in Europe is an art form. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, one thing I'm curious about because this is a, one that you go back to very often is "Oh my lambs." Oh my lambs. What's the origin of that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when I moved to Charlotte, uh, I I'm a big fan of the Southern accent in general. I think it's very mellifluous. You know, it's uh, I, I, sometimes I, I'll even find myself you know slipping into Southern accent without even realizing it, which is kind of scary. Uh, especially, you know, when I'm on the road and I'm in South Carolina and you're at a gas station somewhere, I mean, you're going to hear this kind of accent a lot. So, you know, so I've, I picked up on a couple of Southern phrases and Oh My Lands is a pretty niche phrase. My good friend, Peter Giannatos is the founder of the Charlotte Chess Center. He actually taught me this phrase and his babysitter in his youth, I hope Peter would be okay with me sharing this story. I'm sure he would be, was uh, this, this woman, Helen, and she was an older Southern woman. And she would use that phrase as kind of a stand-in for, oh, my God. So if you Google it, it, it is, you know, you will find this phrase in existence, but it's very, very obscure. And I like obscure phrases because, you know, it's kind of a watermark. You know, if I use it, people know where it comes from. So that's where all my lens comes from. It kind of stuck with me. You know, Damn Girl is another one of those that uh, that I picked up on since I moved to Charlotte. And again, I, I like those phrases because I, I'm a big believer in ultimately uh humor as a as as a common ground you know we we, we struggle uh these days to find common ground and i think laughter and you know funny phrases and stuff is something that everybody cross-culturally can appreciate yeah I, <clears throat> that's uh that's that's amazing uh and actually your accents are uh one of uh, your <laughs> trademarks i would say in the world of chess and chess commentary i want to take it back a few notches in a few steps and there's this uh, very famous photo i see it all the time on this kasparov chess foundation website and and presentations of you um learning from gary that must be a memory that have stayed with you is it oh, i'm so happy you asked that because it, it it does figure prominently in my chess development so the background is that Gary Kasparov, and I, the, the years are really blurred in my mind. I don't remember the years when this happened. I think, I wanna say like 20, 2006, 2007, 2008. I don't remember how many times I attended. It's, it was about three. Uh, Kasparov used to host a masterclass, a two-day masterclass for talented kids in New York City. Fabi, did you ever attend that? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I have memories that go back, I think 2003 is when I met with Kasparov for about an hour and there were a lot of other people in the room. Uh, I, I think uh, that this was like with the Kasparov uh, Chess Foundation, and there was there was a, a prominent um, benefactor uh, named Stanley Druckenmiller who was like yes. who was uh, supporting chess in the in the New York City area. And I remember Jen Shahadi was there. I don't remember how many people. Probably Miran was there as well. And he looked at some of my games, and he was like, "You don't play anything like me." <laughs> Which sound? I think it was like maybe supposed to be an insult, but he was like, "You play more like Karpov." I was like, "Okay, that's not so bad." Ooh. It's funny you mentioned Karpov's name because I have a story uh, from my first session. So just yeah, so Drew, I remember Drew Kimmler, and and so I attended a couple of those sessions, and it was you know like twenty kids gathered around a big uh, conference room, and everybody had to select I think two or three games. You would come up to the front of the room, you would analyze in front, and Gary would give you tips in front of everybody, and then the next person would come up. Um, and then we break for lunch and it was two days. So it was a big deal to fly San Francisco to New York for two days, but it was Gary Brick and Kasparov. 
And I remember the first time uh, I, we were all sitting there and it was the first time for a lot of the kids that year. And Gary walks into the room and it's like this aura, you know, it's this visible energy. It's, oh my God, that's Kasparov. He's got legs. You know, it's like when you see your teacher in a grocery store um, times a hundred. Uh, it was an amazing experience just to see Gary in action. But the first year, the first night when we finished the analysis for the day, uh, Gary, his wife, my mom and I were in the elevator uh, only us uh, going down to the to the ground floor. And I'm just kind of cowering behind my mom in the corner because I'm in an elevator with Gary Kasparov. Uh, and oh my God. Uh, but my mom starts to strike up a conversation with Gary and he starts asking her about my training. And eventually I started pitching in and then he he addresses me directly. And he's like, well, what, what sorts of training do you do? You know, do you solve puzzles? Yeah, yeah. And then he asks me when, once we're outside, well, whose games do you study? You know, who's your who's your chess role model? And, you know, it's like when someone asks you what your favorite movie is and then you can't remember the name of a single movie you ever watched. It's like you can't call to mind the necessary information suddenly. I had that plus my fact that I was starstruck and I thought and thought and thought and thought. And I said, of all the players I could name to Gary, who do you think I accidentally named? And I wasn't even looking at his games. I said Karpov. <laughs> and my mom got so red faced. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, did you have to say Karpov? To Gary's credit, he took it very gracefully. He says, oh, Karpa, very nice. Yeah, you know, he's someone you, you definitely should learn positional chess from. Um, and then Gary said something like, yeah, you know, and he has got a lot of great end games. Of course, my games didn't really reach the end game. Uh, <laughs> so I, I remember that phrase very clearly. Anyways, that was a good experience from the first year. There were also, you know, slightly darker memories. You know, sometimes when Gary's in a bad mood, he can be a little bit abrasive. Mm. And one year he did make me cry in the, you know, and he made a lot of people cry uh, in that room. But one year he was really going after me about a game. And I, I at some point, I just felt myself choking up. And, uh, you know, it, with Gary, it really depends on, on his mood. But overall, my experiences from that masterclass were super positive. It was super inspiring. And uh, I'm very grateful to Gary for the opportunity to, for the opportunity to, to do this masterclass. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was awesome. I yeah, caught I that. Like Gary, I, caught that. <laughs> I, I don't know if he's like suited for working with kids just because he's, he's so intense and he doesn't have, he doesn't really have the gentle side to him. But when you think of like who has experienced, like the greatest legend who has experienced the most in chess, I mean, I can't even imagine what everything that he experienced, especially like in 84, like we, we don't even have context for that anymore. Playing for three months against Karpov and like every day could be your last day of, of the world championship match. I'm like, it's just even thinking about it is like, uh, I can't. It's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's... Karpov, you know, for three months, you know, it was five, <laughs> three and I couldn't win. It's incredible. You know? <laughs> no, Sorry, it's just continue. amazing. <laughs> I mean that that we still have access to a player like Gary, and he's still like active in chess is uh, is of course a gift to us. Yeah, and I think you attributed uh, <clears throat> your first book and and the theme of the first book is mastering positional chess to uh, studying Karpov. Uh, you you mentioned that you studied Karpov. You you looked at a lot of his games. Would you say um, it has it had a big influence? And 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 what did you take from from his games? Oh, I mean, if you look at my games now, unfortunately, you might conclude that I took very little from his games. But uh, as a kid, and, and I think this is clear now, now that I play a lot more Blitz than Classical, my tendencies were always tactical. I always loved combinations. 
Uh, my repertoire was tactical. I mean, I played the night arc before I knew, you know, how to, how to wipe, wipe my wee wee. Like, you know, it was, I always liked to sacrifice and I loved the tall games. So positional chess always came hard for me. Um, and my coaches early on were always like, you need to, you, you make too many forcing moves. You know, you need to learn how to play quiet position. So eventually I took it upon myself to look at Karpov and Petrosian. Those are the two kind of players that I, uh, that I forced myself to look at. So for Petrosian, I read his book. Uh, I know what it's called in Russian. I think it's called Python strategy in English in, in Russian. It's called the strategy of safety, literally, but it, it, it has a more, it rolls off the tongue a little bit more. Um, and then for Karpov, there was a book, Endgame Virtuoso Anatoly Karpov by Tibor Karoli. He's he's written a lot of good books, actually. Very dense, heavy books. But um, I looked at a lot of his endgames. And I think it really did inspire me to uh, improve my skills in equal positions and boring positions. And I started to understand that, you know, you can't steer every game in the direction that you want to. You You have to, you know, you have to learn how to play positions that you don't like playing. And I never necessarily grew fond of Karpov's style. I never was like, the, this. I can really relate to this. Uh, but I think it, it put in place a lot of necessary puzzle pieces that ultimately propelled me toward GM. I think when I, once I was an IM, one of the toughest parts of my chess career were the two years that I was stuck on like 2460. Mm. I got my first GM norm very, very quickly. And then it took me two years to get the second. And one of the reasons why was that I just, anytime I was paired with anybody over 2600, it was over like that wasn't even close and a big reason why uh especially with the black pieces was that i anytime i got a slightly worse position which was like every game because my opening stuck sucked and kind of still do um i crumbled instantly and looking at petrosian's games then uh through a kind of new lens th through a more you know through a more knowledgeable lens because i was already an im a lot of things clicked that didn't click the first time i looked at petrosian you know many years ago and that helped me draw a lot of hold a lot of games against top GMs. And the moment I got that in place, you know, the norms came a lot, a lot easier, a lot more quickly. What was Funny, it about Petrosian games? Well, definitely his defensive skill. And and I, I learned that just because you're worse, just because your position is passive, you know, doesn't mean that you have to crumble and lose. But there's a mental um, aspect to that as well, right? Absolutely. Well, there's a self-fulfilling aspect to to that where you when you start holding positions against 2600s, you realize that they're not they're not infallible. Um, and I think Jonathan Rosen, one of my favorite chess authors, uh, he's he's written you know these two influential books on chess psychology. Sorry to you know I'm all over the place, but uh, just to complete this thought, um, he he writes about something called goalkeeper's glory, which really resonated with me, which is that when you've got a bad position. You can focus on how nasty it is and how you'd rather be, you know, home watching Netflix rather than holding, you know, this position against nondescript Spanish 2570 player um, or worse, some Russian GM. And you felt like a f I had to save a, a rook and three versus rook and four against a 2630 Russian GM to get my second GM norm. And that was like, man. So he talks about goalkeepers glory. He talks, well, how do goalkeepers motivate themselves? Because they never score goals. They just got to save a lot of goals, but they also allow a lot of goals by definition. So you just got to focus on, you know, the thrill of not letting your opponent experience the thrill of victory. You know, every move is another saved goal. And now I consider resilience to be one of my biggest strengths in blitz and bullet. And this helps me a lot. You know, I get a bad position and it really does give me a high that I'm holding it. You know, I'm, I'm making it hard for my opponent and the feeling of saving, particularly a lost position, it really 
competes with the feeling of winning a nice game, at least for me, especially when you do it against a good player. I, I'm actually glad that you mentioned uh, Rousen's books because I I also read them when I, I assume that you read them when you were quite young. And, and I also um, Chess for Zebras and, and uh, Seven Deadly Chessons. And I remember yes. that very clearly, like that chapter about um, how do you how do you save lost positions or how do you defend bad positions? And I even remember the game that he used where he was completely busted and, and he like managed to to save it. And and yeah, there I, I always like this one aspect which he mentioned, which was like the theory of infinite resistance. And I like see that over and over again. I think that now modern players, it just becomes ingrained, like especially with young players, they just kind of instinctively understand this. But if you just keep not making mistakes and losing positions, and if you just avoid losing move by move, then at some point your opponent messes up. It's like almost inevitable, no matter who your opponent is. Even even Magnus, who okay, obviously you can't really count on him not winning one positions, but he still messes up quite quite a lot because it's just people will make mistakes and winning winning uh, one position is very very difficult. So if you have that like understanding, which I think younger players know, have it even better than us. But uh, yeah, you just save like a million, you save a million points that you would have otherwise lost, and and that is. Uh, that can like make or break a tournament or or, or even a career, right? Yeah, absolutely, no. absolutely. Tenacity is is pretty much one of the big differentiators. Yeah, be between as you mentioned the IM level and the GM level, every single GM on the on planet Earth will hate defending these type of positions, but they will also have uh, that um, strategy in the back of their mind that makes them continue with resiliency all the way until the last move. I mean, losing chess games is extremely painful. Uh, and that's one of the pleasures of chess as well, saving losing positions. It, it, it gives you a very special feeling for sure. All right, let's uh, fast forward a few years. Uh, you Actually, I just want to continue yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on this point for like one more. Because sure. Tanya, you're also like a, a very prominent uh, chess coach and educator. And, and you mentioned like working on your weaknesses as something that you did. I also heard that it's, very useful more so than to work on your weaknesses to work on your strengths because those are maybe the what makes the difference between you and other players right if you're like super super good at something to like really accentuate that do you think it's more useful to work on things that you struggle in or to work on things that you excel in and make that even better i'm glad you brought that up i mean i i take inspiration from i think ramesh's motto the, the prominent coach of the indian uh team in prague and i had the uh, great honor uh, to train with with ramesh for a couple months and he always says you know, it has to be 50-50. You need to pull up, you know, one to grow on, one to glow on. As my fifth grade teacher used to say, you need to pull up your your greatest weaknesses and, and bring that to a decent level. And then you need to elevate your biggest strength. So essentially my coaching philosophy is, is to do almost spread evenly down the middle, but it really depends on the person. I think people are all over the map when it comes to how well-rounded they are. Um, I've had students who truly, you know, even as 21, 2200 players, I look at their games and I'm like, man, you know, they they can do everything, but that can also be kind of a curse because when they play, you know, if you're 2200 and you're 2200 at everything, the problem is if you play at 2300, there's no type of position that you can get where you're going to be better than them. Um, if you're 2200, but your tactics are at a 2400 level and your positional understanding is at a 2000 level, that's exciting because if you get a wild position against an IM, I've had students who absolutely like they they outcalculate me in certain types of positions, um, and that can be easier to target because you kind of know okay, well if we 
bring your positional understanding up to a 2200 level, then you're almost guaranteed to improve. Uh, so I think it depends on, on, on the person. Um, it's as a coach, I'm also biased by my own limitations. I love working with students on calculation. I think I'm better at explaining that. Uh, but, but I do try to force myself, uh, to, you know, if something's unpleasant for me to work on, it probably is more, even more important to work on that with a student because they're going to find it unpleasant. And that's ultimately, I think the role of a chess coach is, is to force the student to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Um, and to, and to fill in the gaps that, that remain unfilled. Uh, when you only work with yourself, because then you gravitate toward, you know, the fun activities and the things that you like to do. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's a great point, Fabian. As a coach, I'm I'm always learning. I, I haven't, and I'm not shy about saying this. I, I don't have a clear coaching philosophy because I'm still a novice. I still consider myself a beginner as a coach, uh, even though I've coached for 10 years, you know, I, uh, maybe in 20 years, I'll have a clearly defined coaching philosophy, but I'm not afraid to admit that I make a lot of mistakes as a coach and every student for me is, is also a learning experience for, for myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, go ahead, Fabi. Uh, go on, Christian. Well, I wanted to kind of uh, stay on the same tangent and speak about, because we actually met each other, I think for the first time in the Bay area, we were both coaching for Bay area chess. <laughs> you remember those years that <laughs> those mornings, those Saturday mornings. Morning. Yeah. Saturday I never mornings. did anything on Friday night. I was always very perked up on uh, 9 a.m. on Saturday. Yeah. I have no stories of what happened the previous night because I was in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll get to that in just a second as well. But speaking though about um, group trainings, uh, and this is what I'm doing right now for the most part at the university with players of different levels. And I I'm trying to find, and, and I'm still experimenting with that, I'm trying to find the balance between, you know, a 2200 playing against a 2500 um on the regular and most likely losing uh, and also not losing hope and and losing motivation because that's a whenever you're playing against a strong opponent and uh you know you have negative results you can lose motivation very easily what would you say is the balance between making your um your students play against stronger players and against weaker players to maintain that positivity within training sessions so I actually err pretty conservatively on that topic in the sense that I usually don't advise my students to, so playing up I mean, for, for maybe for newer viewers, playing the concept of playing up is most American tournaments are divided into sections. So if your rating is 1900, you can play in the under 2000 section, but you can play up. So you can also play in the open and that raises the possibility that you face stronger opponents every round. Generally, I advise students to play in you know, the section that they can play. And so if you're 1900, I'll say play in the under 2000 section, unless the student themselves really wants to and has a drive. No, I want to play in the open. I want to play masters. I'm not going to prevent, you know, as a coach a student from doing what they want to do. Um, but I've worked with a lot of parents who, who are, I think this is also, you know, my parents were, were susceptible to this a little bit, this concept that if you're not playing people who are better than you every game, then you're not, you know, learning from the game. Um, and so I did play a, up quite a bit as a kid, but it's also very easy for that to hurt your confidence, mm -hmm. um, as you said, Christian. Yeah. So I did have uh, a tournament where, the World Open, where I played in the open section. I really didn't want to play in the open. Um, and I did end up losing a bunch of games and it was kind of just a nasty experience. Um, I feel that unless a student is like significantly underrated and I really think that they have a chance to score some upsets, um, if there's a chance that they go like, oh, out of six, I, I really think that you should learn how to beat players you're rating 
uh, before moving to the next level. That is sort of my credo. Um, at the same time, I think if you're, you know, 1870 playing in the under 1900 section makes less sense. So I think it's good in a tournament to play like half of 50% of people who are higher rated and 50% of people who are lower rated. I mean, that gives you a little bit of experience there and a little bit of experience there. But as a coach, I think some people might be surprised to hear that I, I do fall pretty conservatively on that scale uh, in the sense of, you know, I, I, I think you can learn from any game. And I think for kids of the new generation, confidence has become even more of an important thing to work on, especially when they're young, because there's always going to be a time where you can play the open section, but building up that early confidence in feeling that, yes, I can win, I can beat this guy is very important to put into place early in one's chess development. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But no, you're welcome I, to disagree with me. I, you know, I think there's many ways to look at this. I, 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 I tend to, to agree with you in that regard. How about you, Fabi? I'm not really a coach, but I, I do feel like the... But maybe you will be one day. <laughs> well, that's possible. I, I've done like a tiny bit of coaching, but I, I, I normally take like my own experience and extrapolate because I think that even if it's different levels, that a lot of the same factors are important. And I think confidence, as you mentioned, is a very important factor, no matter what the level is. And confidence gives strength. So if you're, if you're playing players who are like 2,500 and you're... 1900 and then you just lose all your games uh, that doesn't help you because it, it's going to lower your confidence when you play players who are slightly above your level or equal to your level and you have to find a good mix you don't also don't want to beat up on people who are who are vastly inferior to you and then you're not prepared for really high level resistance but yeah you don't you don't want to be losing all your games that's just going to, to mess you up i think uh, unless you have like the strongest mentality ever and you can just keep coming back again and again and uh, not get affected by losses. But from my experience, um, it, it is like confidence plays a major role. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I actually vividly remember the first time or maybe the second time I played uh, one of these closed GM invitationals. And I was about 2350, 20, close 2400, I would assume, in that range. And I got clobbered. I think I scored, I don't know, two out of nine. And that really... I, I took a hit in terms of my confidence levels at uh, that particular moment in time. I don't want to say that that was in any way, shape or form um, why I stopped improving after a while, but you know, that, that definitely took, uh, took his toll. Um, all right, let's uh, fast forward a few years, uh, Dania, to mm -hmm. the big decision of potentially going to college or continuing as a chess professional, because I feel, especially at your level, and you were around 2600, right? When you made that decision. A little bit less. Yeah, 20, 2540. That was like the summer. And then that summer I got 2600. Right, right, right. So that was a big moment for you, for sure. How did you make that decision too? And you didn't go to college to any college, any chess, uh, ch chess college, like, I don't know, UT Dallas, Mizzou, things of that nature. Um, you went to Stanford. They don't have a big chess culture. You knew that most likely you will have to spend a lot of nights, as you were mentioning, studying. Most likely you will have less time for chess. How did you make that decision? Do you regret in any way that decision? Tell us a bit about that. To be totally honest here, there really wasn't a decision. Um, and and I'm going to be careful here, you know, in, in disclaiming first and foremost that, you know, my parents were instrumental in my chess progress you know, none of none of what I did truly would would have been possible without their tremendous investment. But the expectation in my family was, and this wasn't a question. Okay, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? The expectation was that I'm going to take a gap year after high school, 
to you know scratch the chess itch and to to see how far I can get, and then I'm going to go to you know a good college and I'm going to find a respectable profession. Uh, now, part of partly this was because there were two, there were two components at play. Uh, given my psychological makeup and my like in a lot of my interest in other fields, I myself could not see myself playing classical chess as a profession. I and mostly I think this is because I don't think I can handle the stress, and um, I just I, I I just that was wasn't the path I wanted to take because already back then I liked coaching. And I liked doing chess related things. I could see myself commentating and I really, really wanted that to figure prominently uh, in in whatever I ended up doing if I remained in chess. Uh, but at the same time, the expectation from my parents was that after high school, I, I could take a gap year, but then I would have to go to a respectable college. And, and for me, you know, going against my parents' wishes uh, at that time in my life was not something that was on the menu, nor did I want to do that. I did want to go to college. I did want to experience other subjects. I did want to see if I would fall in love with something. And I did want to have the social experience of college. So it, it wasn't like I was dragged uh, to college and I was screaming and shouting, no, I want to, you know, I want to play Open, you know, and I want to play all these tournaments. Um, so that was kind of how that decision worked. Uh, so in, in high school, I applied to college pretty normally. I applied to the Samford Fellowship, which I was uh, very privileged to receive, mm -hmm. and that kind of confirmed that I was going to take a gap year. And when I took a gap year after high school, I had already gotten into Stanford, and I deferred. They, Stanford allows you to defer uh, your attendance year. by up – yeah, I think it's even up to two years, but I wasn't planning to do two years. Um, so that summer after I graduated high school, I, I went like 2540 to, to 2630 in like you know one breath. and. Actually, a lot of players I talk to, you know, that, that happens pretty often, I think. Like, 24 to 2,500 can be tough, but a lot of players who are, you know, semi-talented, they go 25 to 2,600 pretty quickly. Um, I feel under attack right now. <laughs> <laughs> semi-talented? I mean, that's... Well, you, you skipped 2,600, went straight to 2,700, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've been yeah, stuck yeah. at 2,500 for, like, the last 20 years. <laughs> hey, I've, I've, I've been slowly, you know, drip, 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 back back to that that swamp land. Drink <laughs> cartwheels in a swamp. Yep. Um, so, in any case, I, I hit 2,600 that summer. The gap year itself was an amazing experience. So I kind of stabilized at 2,620, 2,630, uh, except for one terrible experience I had, uh, which was the uh, U.S. Championship, I think, 2016 where I dropped 30 points and got last place with like two and a half out of 11. So there was it that. It have been 2016. I, I just, the, the only reason that I played. 15. Okay, that, yeah, because I played 2016 and, and we didn't play there. 2015, 2015. We did yeah. play, you You kicked my ass, but uh, I, I well, still haven't forgiven you for that. <laughs> not before you kicked my ass in 20 moves in the French. Um, fun, that game was funny. I, I mixed up the move order, right, in that game. And I don't know what possessed me to play this Queen A5, Queen A4, win hour French, which is the most not Danya opening. If there's like one opening that you could design to be anti, anti me, it's the Queen A5, Queen A4, uh, win hour. Peter, my friend Peter calls this the we know open for business variation because the, <laughs> the center is so close. I can't play those positions. And when you play Queen G4, I knew that I knew the game was over like before it began. I think it was um, just bad luck because I had like by accident checked this very recently and not like I, it wasn't even on my radar. <laughs> Like it was, it was pretty recently before the tournament. It wasn't on my radar. I was just like flipping through a book, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And then I, I saw this idea. Um, so you just like happened to choose a rare line, which by com complete accident I was looking at. 
so that was 2017, but the 2015 yeah. U.S. Championship, I it, it was, and I could talk about that tournament for the whole podcast. I mean, it was one of the, it was a very trying experience because it was one of those tournaments that you always, every GM has a nightmare of having one of those tournaments where every game you come and you lose and you lose and you lose and you lose and you lose. And it's 11 rounds and you lose to one guy, you face Alexander Onishuk with black. And at some point, your confidence is hurt to the point where you know that you're going to lose when you come to the board. I did win one game against Conrad Holt. But that tournament could not end soon enough. And to make matters worse, we all flew to Armenia after that tournament for the World Team Championship, where I did a rebound and the cosmic balance was restored. I beat my first Super GM uh, in that tournament to, to save the match against Russia. Anyways, just to get back to your question, Christian, I've gone off on a tangent as usual. Um, my gap year was amazing. I had a lot of great experiences, but then I didn't protest. I mean, it felt natural at that point to go to college. I had a great time in college overall. Mm -hmm. Um, do I regret going to college? Absolutely not. And um, I think that the important thing to, to point out, even though I'm back in chess, is that college, yes, I, I won't necessarily use my history skills uh, in my profession, but I think college is partially what made me compensate on the level that I do and teach on the level that I do. I took a lot of inspiration from some of my best professors, not necessarily in what they taught me, but in how they taught me. And, uh, you know, I did acquire a lot of social skills in college. And I think a lot of the phrases that I use now and, and the way that I act and behave in the chess world, I think is a lot of it is attributable to a lot of experiences that I had in college. And, you know, no, I didn't end up doing an internship. No, I'm not a consultant at Deloitte now. Um, but I still overall, college was an indelible part of my development as a person. Um, and my development as a person has contributed very positively to my development as a chess personality, uh, I think. And I could delve into any area of that as as necessary. We could take this in any direction that, that you want. And I feel this was a much more pertinent question a few years back when there weren't as many opportunities in the world of chess to make a living, right? Uh, you could make it as a chess player and then you probably don't go to college as a playing chess player mm -hmm. or you, uh, you, know, you go to college and you get stuck at 25, 2600, things of that nature. Now you can, as you uh, proved it uh, so eloquently. You can make a living out of chess doing other things. You can make a living playing. You can make a living uh, streaming. You can make a living doing YouTube. You have playing so online. many avenues, exactly. Playing online, developing different skills because there's players that play better online. There's players that play better with no increment. There's so many niches that you can target as a chess player and as a chess professional in general nowadays that were not available five years ago. Exactly. No, that's so true. I mean, even when I moved to Charlotte, when I made the big decision to move to Charlotte in uh, end of 2019, right before COVID started, my plan was, yes, I was already streaming at that time, but mostly I was going to coach. You know, that was going to be my biggest source of income. You know, and maybe do some YouTube on the side. Now it's flipped. I do YouTube and Twitch and coaching on the side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a back then. It was a much scarier decision because it was less of a conventional path. And you know, some people don't know how close I was to going on a different path. I was about to start my master's program in history in Stanford. I was three weeks away. I had I knew where I was living. I had my classes selected, and I had a complete 180. Like, and it it was like a story that I'll include in my memoir later. I, I met up with my friend. Uh, one Saturday morning, uh, my my non-chess, my college friend, and you know we we got into this uh, conversation, and we were sitting in this you know garden area in San Fran. We 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 ended up talking for like four or five hours about life, and it kind of spiraled into this existential discussion. And at the end of it, I'm like, 
what am I doing? Like, I know what I want to be doing. What's stopping me from doing that? Uh, Peter, my friend, had been invited inviting me to move to Charlotte for basically my whole college experience. And I, my immediate response is out of the question, ruled out. You're never going to happen, can't happen. And at that point, I just grew sick and tired of that voice in my head, which is just like, no, you can't do this. Like, no, you can't do that. Like, I'm in control of my life. And I was like, let me give this a shot. You know, what if what if it works, you know, on the off chance that it actually succeeds? And, you know, I, I never looked back. I, I think the other path that I could have taken would have also provi provided a lot of fulfillment. I don't think it's like, oh, I was about to ruin my life. But I really do think that it was a good lesson for me in, in trusting that inner voice, which truly knows wh where you should be and what you should be doing. I love it. Yeah, yeah. No, and... <clears throat> Let's go to chess and mental health, because that's another thing that uh, we should probably uh, discuss. And, and it's a topic that I see arise uh, quite often online, on Twitter, uh, things of that nature. How how would you say your mental health is? Um, you, you mentioned that you had some psychological problems. You think that you couldn't have managed to uh, deal with the pressure of playing and trying to make it 2800. How, how do you deal with that right now? Well, um, okay, there's there's a couple of avenues here. I think right in the current moment, my health, my mental health and my like psychological makeup is better than it, it's been in years past. And you know, part of this is because I, okay, this is, I, I think gonna be a disappointment for some people, but at the end of the day, I'm in charge of my own life and I know what's best for me. Um, and, and I am, at, at this age, I think I've reached an age where I realized that everybody, you know, people know themselves better than any other people know them. And, you know, for me, a big, big step was deciding that I am, at least for the current moment, I'm not going to speak five years from now. I'm not 60 years old. Uh, so maybe this will change uh, when I become more more established. Uh, but I am sort of semi-retired at the current present moment from classical chess. Um, last few years, I've played a couple tournaments a year, mostly tournaments in, in Charlotte. And I think I've handled myself pretty well. You know, I played US Championship, like I played uh, some pretty strong opens, and I, I haven't performed really badly in any of them. But right now, given my lack of classical preparation, which I think is something a lot of people don't really comprehend how how hard it is to not play classical. It's like a self fulfilling prophecy. You don't play for a year, and then you play, you know, John Smith, six years old, nineteen hundred in the first round, and you're like, <laughs> you know, you got to change your pants like three times per game because yeah, like I could actually lose this game. Um, so right now, what's best for my mental health is what I'm doing right now. I'm playing a ton online. I'm playing a lot of online events. And I am actively trying to improve my blitz and bullet level. So I, I love chess more than I've ever loved it in my life. But I've made the decision mostly for my mental health to put off uh, my classical chess development for the time being because of how stressful it is. And, you know, I have the absolute greatest admiration for that reason for, for people like you, Fabi, who, who keep and improve your level in this, you know, brutally... A difficult chess environment right now um and christian you as well of course i don't um, play i'm a retired I, i'm a retired <laughs> chess player i, well, I <laughs> coaching doing some some youtube on the side uh that that's that's me and commentary that's basically what i, I think it's nowadays. an interesting topic though because chess and uh and mental health and like also if we go way back it's been well documented that a lot of strong chess players have suffered from uh from mental health problems and obviously, I don't know like exactly what the reason is, but uh, there's always been speculation that's because chess does uh, provide like a mental strain and a psychological strain on someone. And also, 
it's a very solitary activity. Mm -hmm. So very often you, you have to like rely on yourself. Um, so yeah, I, obviously like a case like Bobby Fischer is a classic one or, or, or Morphe, right. Uh, or Rubenstein, like these players who, who were, who were the greatest of their time. Um, and, and then they struggled from very, very serious mental health problems, which even, uh, ended their careers very often. Right. Uh, in the, in the case of Bobby Fischer, I think we, it's safe to say, and, and now we're, we're a bit more, um, cognizant of, of mental health, right. Of the importance of keeping, um, yeah, of, of not like sacrificing your entire life for chess, because obviously it is just a board game and also trying to, to maintain your, uh, maintain your psychology and keep like a normal life somewhat. But also Magnus spoke about this recently, right? The, the, the reason why he finds classical chess uh, not as fun as it used to be is because it's so stressful and uh and i can also relate to that as well i, I think we all can to some degree would you say that's also because you know in the digital age everything seems to be much more interconnected the world seems like a smaller place right back in the days you know no social media you were going to play a tournament you didn't really know what's happening in the other side of the world nowadays there's like five tournaments going on at the same time you could be commentating you could be playing you could be taking a trip to the uh, bahamas if you want i think that's where magnus is right now <laughs> he's been posting some vacation photos like it just feels like a much smaller world and and the opportunities of doing something else feel like they they overtook a little bit um our our mental capacity if that makes any sense does that make any sense it makes perfect sense Bobby. i'll let you i've, I've talked too much as it is <laughs> no I, i'm curious to, to hear your thoughts about it as well I you're mean, the I, guest I just, daria you're the guest <laughs> thank you um, th th man, this is, this is such an interesting, such an important topic. And, you know, the last turn classical tournament that I played, um, which was the Charlotte uh, local open tournament here in Charlotte, you know, I remember sitting at the board and, and thinking all these thoughts and I'm very blessed to have an incredible community on Twitch and YouTube that is ridiculously supportive and ridiculously wholesome. Um, and it's you know, something I don't take for granted, but even with that in, in account, um, as I'm playing these games, sometimes like, man, if I lose to this 2200, you know, it's, it, it, there's gonna be a Reddit post and, you know, there's gonna, I'm gonna have to talk about it on stream and stuff. And of course I don't, and nobody's gonna hold it against me. And I know that I'm not blaming anybody. I'm blaming myself uh, for having these thoughts, but I realize that I'm not enjoying this. I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for taking, you know, watching the seconds tick down for the tournament to end, um, so that I can, you know, hopefully keep my 2600 and, you know, go back to streaming and playing Blitz and, and having a good time. And that's when I kind of realized, like, wait a second, I don't, again, I don't have to do anything. I, you know, I don't have to play another tournament if I don't want to. And right now I don't want to, um, because that's what's best for my mental health and my well-being. Um, but you're right, Christian, in the sense that everybody knows about everything. You know, there's just, there's so much going on at the same time. And your life, if you're in any kind of public role, is kind of, uh, on broadcast uh, 24 seven. And I am by nature a very private person. I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, some people might be surprised to find I'm very much an introvert. Um, and I do like my my peace and quiet. Um, and what I'll end with is, is I forgot what I was gonna say, but yeah, I was just gonna make a comment about Morphe. Uh, it is very true that the kind of mental health problems that a lot of these players have experienced, it manifests itself as a distaste as a hatred for chess you know so morphe i've read a lot about morphe he's a fascinating character 
And when he came back from Europe uh, at age, you know, 22 or whatever, and retired from chess, it wasn't that he just retired from chess and would play casual games on the side. There are stories from when Morphe opened a law office and tried to put his past behind him. Uh, the reason he failed as a lawyer was because all of his clients would come in, they would pretend to ask questions about law, and they're like, Paul, can we? Can I get a game from you? You know, what what, what was it really like? You know, giving that blindfold simul in Europe, and Morphe would get angry and start shouting and send them out of the room. There's even a, a famous, well, not a famous story, but uh, Wilhelm Steinitz, uh, the first world champion, wanted to meet Morphe uh, in the 1880s. And Steinitz traveled to New Orleans and chronicled his journey. I'm, I'm going to meet Morphe. And he met Morphe in the streets. Morphe finally agreed to meet Steinitz. And when they met, Morphe said the phrase, hello, Wilhelm, I'm down to have a conversation as long as it's about anything but chess. And in his New York Times report, Steinitz literally is like, and I was standing there being like, well, what the WTF do you want me to talk about? I mean, I know you're a good lawyer, but you're Morphe. Like, that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, so it really does, you know, in many cases translate to a hatred for chess. And I definitely don't want that to be the case. You know, that is what I fear. I want to maintain a wholesome relationship with the game. And that is why at my, you know, it's weird to say at my age, um, I don't mean to imply that I'm old, but at my level of experience, I'm I'm ready to start doing things on my terms. Uh, you know, I've put in the hours, I've put in the years, and I've put in the travel, and I want to chill a little bit. And that's just, you know, that's what I'm doing. I want to yeah. I, I want to ask you the same question, Fabi, because uh, you're kind of the the differentiator in this one. I'm having a similar path to Dania, and I kind of retired. I consider myself retired from um, chess playing, but obviously, you, Fabi, that's that's your main thing right now. Uh, do you ever have these type of thoughts? Yeah, actually, I, I think that it's something that anyone who's played chess can relate to on some level. So you don't have to be, uh, no matter what your level is, you you can feel the pain of losing a chess game, right? We've all felt that at some point. And I wanted to build off a little bit of what, what Danya said, because of course, I, I, I'm i not Morphe, um, but I, I can understand sort of why he grew to hate chess. And also Fisher, I think, is another example of someone who, uh, if it feels like he started to despise chess at some point in his life. Um, and I think it's it's very important that, of course, we all get these very unpleasant emotions when we lose a chess game because chess is so immersive that when you put all of your energy into it and you and you fail and you lose a game like we all do at, at some point or, or fail in a tournament or whatever uh, the circumstances, it can be really crushing even if it's not for like an extended period of time, even if it's like a, like an hour feeling after the game, like, oh my God, you know, my, like everything is, is life is terrible and everything's awful because totally. I lost this chess game. And, and those negative emotions can grow into a hatred of chess, right? So I, I think it's very important to keep uh, a sense of perspective. And, and that's what I very often do when I, when something really bad happens in chess, like, okay, life is still fine. You know, you lost this chess game or you, you messed up this chess tournament. And, um, and like, I can, I can even, uh, mention recent events, like losing to Nakamura in the last round. I'm like, okay, this was, this was the shittiest way to end the tournament, but in, in of Norway chess, uh, but still life is fine. And there's going to be a next tournament. And in a few days, I'll probably forget all about this. <laughs> Oslo still so, stands. <laughs> it's, it, I think keeping those, um, whatever your level is whether you're like playing a, at a club level and and uh, you lose a game and you don't win your club championship or, or even if you're playing online and 
it's just casual chess, uh, you know, playing some like three minute, uh, three zero, you know, on, on an afternoon after work. Uh, and those, those losses are painful too, just to keep perspective of, okay, this it's painful. And we, we all, um, we all suffer when we mess up, but yeah, this is, it's just chess. It's, it's not the end of the world. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it feels like it, but it's, it's not. Uh, but those players who we mentioned, like Morphe, uh, Fisher, Rubenstein, I think Stein is also like he he ended up yep. um, having very serious psychological and mental issues near the end of his life. Uh, those players weren't able to deal with it. And those were the best players in the world. And even like like Fisher, he achieved everything you could achieve. So so uh, what more do you want from a chess career? Uh, like you can't want more than what Fisher achieved. But yeah it's it's very difficult it's i think it's just because we're we invest so much into it and we're all alone at the chessboard for hours and hours so you just naturally invest all your energy into it all your mental energy and then mm -hmm. it can be really crushing to lose yeah very well said but even you fabi in recent years despite the fact that obviously your main focus is still winning a world championship uh still becoming the world champion but you even dabbled into commentary into doing courses into doing you know even this podcast so how did you make that decision i kind of want to understand that that mental shift because you were mostly focused i mean i'm you were not doing a lot of social media you were not doing any of these type of things but then at some point you started doing commentary you started doing the podcast you started doing uh courses how did you make that mental shift well first i was convinced by uh, danny actually he usually danny is the one who's trying to convince you <laughs> he's the instigator <laughs> he convinced yeah. me to start streaming what a terrible influence <laughs> no i think it's actually it is great how um how he convinced so many players to start streaming and brought this whole like world out to the to wider chess public but yeah in 2018 he was like okay you should start streaming and i did for a bit and it wasn't really for me um but yeah, I, for some people, it's like uh, it's much a much more enjoyable process, I think, and and people excel at it more than I did. So I, I still kind of like dabble a little bit, but but not too extensively. Do you feel it helps with your chest, relieve some stress, get your mind off, you know, theory um, and things of that nature? Actually, I'm 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 curious. Uh, also, Donnie, what do you think about this? Because one of the like one of the players who's really notable for me is Hikaru as someone who obviously was a top player for a really long time, uh, but he seemed to have gotten stronger after he also um, yeah. became- Yeah, <laughs> scary, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, but I, I'm always wondering like, because um, I, I don't really stream much, but do you feel like also for yourself and maybe as well for Ikaru that having that other thing makes it easier to play chess as well? I think for Hikaru, what was so important, it's not the only thing, but the fan base, you know, the, the fan base that supported him every step of the way, I think, for, you know, maybe it's different for people of different personalities, but but I think for Hikaru, that was so important in kind of grounding him and giving him that additional confidence because Hikaru is already very confident. I mean, he always was, but I think he completely lost his fear. I mean, he said this phrase that was on the cover of a new in chess uh, magazine, like 15 years ago, I lost my fear of losing. And I truly think that Hikaru might be, uh, I made this point with my friend Bortnik, we were talking about, well, what makes Hikaru Hikaru? And of course it's his play and it's his talent and everything. But part of it, I think, is that he, he doesn't, he's not afraid to lose. He genuinely is not, it's like he doesn't have an iota of fear that other players like me, you know, I grapple with this fear every waking moment. I grapple with this fear when I'm playing 
you know, a 32nd game at, at 3 a.m. Like, oh my, what if I lose? You know, um, oh my God, <laughs> the world is gonna world is gonna end. But Hikaru just doesn't have that. And I think one of the things that helped him reach that point was the fact that he's got this fan base and this very uh, this 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 grounding presence of his of his audience, um, but also the fact that he can call himself a streamer. And you know, for me, uh, I was going to make the point that school actually really helped me put things in perspective, as you put it, Fabi. And I think for Hikaru, the fact that he can come back to a stream, and you know, he has this other aspect of his life, it has also, I think, made his results in classical chess better, which I think isn't talked about a lot. How I think Hikaru has shown. I read some statistic like the best performance in classical of like anybody like this the year, last yeah, year. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, wait, does he even play classical? Like, yes, he does. And every time he does, it seems he does really well. Um, and I think it's, there were a lot of people saying when he started streaming that he's going to be 2,600, uh, you know, in two years. And I think those people just don't know who they're dealing. Hikaru is not going to be 2,600 at age 164. Um, <laughs> you know, you could tie this guy's hands and legs and make him move his, move his pieces with his mouth. And he'd flag people. So, but he did uh, have play people. He did have this moment of dropping to like twenty seven thirty, yes. right? And yeah. then he kind of picked up streaming a little bit more seriously and gave him an avenue to um, get his confidence back, as you were mentioning. I just think people like when you watch his game, when you watch this, when you play him as many times as you know I have in Blitz, and I know it's Blitz, but you still you feel the strength to the point where when he was twenty seven thirty, I. To me, there was no doubt that, you know, if he kept playing classical, he was going to climb. Not to make myself this oracle, but it was just based on my experiences playing him. Um, so I think it is uh, pretty incredible that, he, you know, he's managed to keep keep up his level and his blitz level, it feels like, has improved as well, which is scary. You know, in bullet, yeah, maybe like I, I have a lot of practice in bullet. And when push comes to shove, he still kicks my ass in like a bullet match, but... And, and one that matters, but I at least in Bullet, I feel like I can compete with him. In Blitz, I almost feel more so than two years ago that it's like when he's on form, it's ridiculous. There's no you, no, no chance. It's just crazy. Yeah, well, I, I experienced that recently. I played, uh, as as you saw, of course, uh, a match against Hikaru in the Speed Chess Championship. And I, I yeah, at some point I started to feel like uh, I'm, I'm getting outplayed from any position. Which also I, I have this like interesting thing, and, and I think that you're you definitely um know more about this than probably uh anyone. Like playing blitz over the board and online, I feel like my vision is different. Like yeah. my vision of the board. And 2D I wonder if you yeah. also feel that. Like, do you feel like you visualize either better over the board or online or vice versa? And and do you think that's like a very um like that is a big thing for People or, or generally speaking, someone who, who visualizes over the board will more or less perform the same online. I think, and Christian, I'll definitely let you provide your input. I'll be brief. Um, I definitely, I don't feel like my vision of the board is worse or better online versus OTB. I think it's different. I almost, when I play over the board blitz tournaments, which is rare because um, there just aren't that many, but I played one yesterday, like a local Charlotte event. And I'm like, man, I think I actually play a lot faster over the board blitz than I play online. And I somehow feel a lot more intuitive. I think I calculate less over the board than online. Like online in a Title Tuesday game, um, and this is, I think, part of the reason I struggle in Title Tuesdays, um, I, I overthink it and I actually try to calculate too much. I, I depart from who I am as a natural chess player 
and I try to make myself out to be someone I'm not. And that's why I get into all these time pressure situations over the board. I don't really have these worries and I'm a lot more like ready to make a, a speculative move on the basis of my intuition. Um, in terms of like my vision of the board in a classical game versus my vision of the board in let's say an online rapid game, I like haven't paused to flesh out my thoughts, but definitely I think there is a distinction and, and my vision of the board is different OTB online, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I do too, because I, I definitely have like a different feeling. Like it, it just feels different when I see the board online versus over the board. And I, and I started thinking about this also because I was playing the World Cup and then like I, I was looking at the board from a black point of view playing the game. And then I looked at the like monitors in the um, kind of re refreshment area. And that was from white's point of view. And I was like, oh my God, this position is <laughs> so different looking at it from white's point of view. And I was thinking... <laughs> Like maybe depending on your angle of vision and also obviously this would uh, apply to online looking at a screen versus looking at a board like your perception of position can completely change and maybe this is not something that's like properly studied because normally you just play over the board right this is like a recent development that online chess becomes so prominent but i think it's a very interesting uh phenomenon no for sure yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would say and i will add to that and i think everything you guys said made perfect sense i would also add the mechanics of moving the pieces that give you a certain feeling and the mechanics of moving the mouse that to at least to my experience and that's maybe because you know i see all these uh players that used to play on play chess on icc on all these platforms growing up i never played internet chess growing up um i was always the guy that wanted to play with a board in front of him and i never had that experience and i think that affected my skill later on in life when online chess became so prominent um nowadays all these kids are you know they're they're growing with, with with the mouse in their hands and uh and 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 starting their chess careers with with the mouse in their hands so it's a completely different generation i would say i i was probably and i'm born in 91 i was we were kind of probably the last generation that you could find some players which are not that accustomed to to, to online chess but there definitely there's a mechanical difference um that has an impact uh on on the level for sure yeah, I think yeah. that's also quite likely. Mm. Yeah, it's just something about it. Uh, Donia, did you ever play on ICC? Oh, I grew up on ICC. For My sure. account was created. Uh, <laughs> man, I, I have a new computer, so I haven't downloaded Blitzen. Uh, otherwise, I'd tell you the date when my... Let me download it now, actually. Um, so 2003 was when the account was created. On my dad's AOL, I don't know if anybody remembers AOL email addresses. Yep. Um, so my rating at and i actually on icc all of the games are saved so i looked up recently my uh training games with my first coach uh she was a women's grandmaster from from russia and i just logged in there we go i just logged in oh i just heard that login sound and anybody who uses icc will immediately send you down memory lane there we go uh my account was created on 1500 the account first used sorry 25th may 2004 so i was eight years old accumulated hours 4196 and there's also percent of life on icc uh, which has, you know, declined. It was something like 4% uh, at my peak. But I remember that. Give, that's that's that, percent that was a very of life meaningful spent yeah, on percent ICC? of life on ICC. Yeah. They had those Perfect. metrics. Yeah, I remember this. This was like, I, how, how no life are you on ICC? Exactly. And the more, and it was like a badge of honor, you know, like I have a bigger number. You know, I have more time wasting it, flushing it down the toilet of ICC. I played 
7,866 one-minute games, 5,424 five-minute games, um, 5,951 blitz games. And so this is just ICC. You know, this is like before chess.com. I loved ICC. I have a lot of great stories from ICC, and we could just do a separate podcast episode on that. Adaptation. Right. Adaptation. I got paired to that adaptation, though. You know the hammer was coming down. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Adaptation. That's <laughs> well, I, 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 I have that is. so many memories from, from ICC days. What, like one of my favorite things was before there was like chess streams and commentators telling you about the positions, like the way to watch top tournaments was to go on ICC and examine a game. And then you could talk to other people uh, while the game is in progress. Like let's say Kasparov is playing Topolov and Linares and uh and then you log on and there's like the chat i forget how many people would be watching but yeah you just chat with people and and there would be some amazing players who you could chat to like i remember god was like one of the players who you could Alan. analyze chess with and uh and that, it was just like an amazing thing for a young chess player to be able to like go online and chat to grandmasters about a top level game that's going on but yeah i, I have a lot of good memories from those days yeah, I have yeah. a funny story, but go ahead, Christian. No, no, you go ahead. I'll share one very quick representative funny story. My first ever interaction with Robert Hess. So RLH2 on ICC. So this was maybe like 2008. I was thinking I was an FM at the time. Um, I played a few Blitz games with Robert on ICC. And the way that ICC worked, there were it's like a 80s style. Okay, people just should download this and go on ICC. It's very hard to explain the ecosystem of ICC unless you've experienced it. But it's basically like a console and you have to type commands in the console. Um, but when you're playing a game, you can switch the mode of transmission from command to tell opponent. Um, and sometimes when I'd lose a painful game, I'd like release steam by typing cuss words, but it was in the command tab. So it wouldn't like send and he would just say no F word, F word, F word, no command called F word, F word, F word, you know, like S word, F word, you know, I don't know if I, can I, can I cuss on, on, on yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, no problem. Okay, 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 okay. I won't, I'll keep it, I'll keep it to a minimum, but, um, yeah, like fucking shit. Like, uh, oh, no command, fucking shit. Like, you know. Uh, so, when I lost the game to Robert, I released like a string of those cuss words. And when I pressed enter a bunch of times, I realized that it was accidentally set on tell opponent. Uh, <laughs> so, in all caps, I sent Robert like fucking fuck, like, like all this, all this shit. And he, he, I think sent me like two question marks, and I'm like, oh my god. But even back then, like, I respected Robert. Were you no, guys Robert, buddies Robert at that point? Thing. No, Were... I didn't know him at all. Oh, um, this was our first ever interaction, and the next first time I ever saw him, I think it was like a U.S. Junior Championship. I came up to him and I'm like, "I'm so sorry. I promise this was an accident." And uh, it's so funny how now we're we're very close friends, and uh, life is just so funny like that. How it can start off that way and it has a good ending. But I remember I it doesn't have to do with ICC directly, but that was one of the funniest uh, experiences I had. But I felt bad for like weeks i was like why did i do that and i i stopped doing that afterward yeah yeah and you guys are very good friends but also a great team in terms of commentary i would say one of the best teams in terms of uh, commentary you. um <clears throat> speaking of that 2020 that was the big moment for for the chess world kind of when oh. the chess world shifted towards the online sphere um and you had a funny moment and you kind of um blew up in terms of popularity um, people were calling you the prophet, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's because of that um, clip 
with what's his name? I'm trying to remember. There, Moist is, Critical. Moist Carly. Critical. Yes, there we go. Uh, a very famous uh, streamer. And you guys were training for Pop Champs. Uh, you did some training. And then he goes on and checkmates XQC with Queen 2F2, right? This uh, uh, Scottish Gambit. You know, you build up with this uh, Queen F6, Queen takes F2 trick, yep. after Knight C6, <laughs> and then Moist Critical, the, the, the throbbing <laughs> checkmate. <laughs> That was a big moment for you. That was uh, kind of when you blew up in, in the world of chess in, in terms of popularity online. YouTube probably blew up. Twitch probably blew up for you. How was that moment about? And, and, yeah. and tell us about that. Was a, that was a crazy watershed moment. I think it's easier with you know, a viewer who isn't aware of what happened to just search like Moist Critical XQC on, on YouTube and, and find the clip. Um, What's crazy about it is that, you know, uh, it, it there was like a delayed reaction where it, it didn't dawn on me at first, like what was going on. So what I what I did was I downloaded XQC's games like I would with any opponent. And I saw that he was playing the scotch and it, it never occurred to me. I, I did not recommend the bishop c5 queen f6 line because I thought there was any possibility that XQC would blunder mate. It's just the main line. I think a lot of people didn't realize they're like, oh, why is he teaching him like traps? Like, no, this is the main line. You're supposed to play this. Um. And it's so crazy that I actually said the phrase, you know, maybe he blunders made. Imagine what that would create. Um, and there's a funny YouTube compilation where they like splice together that phrase with the actual blunder happening. So when the blunder happened, the hilarious thing was that I wasn't watching the start of that game. I was finishing a lesson and I was going to tune in to XQC Charlie after the lesson concluded. You know, there was maybe 10, 15 minutes left in the lesson. So during the lesson, as my student was thinking about a position, I tuned into the official broadcast and I saw the mate on the board. And I laughed and I was like, oh, Hikaru and Votes are showing what would happen, you know, for because the Pogchamps commentary is geared toward newer players. So I was like, oh, they're 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 showing what would happen if he took on C6. I laughed to myself. And then I'm like, wait, why is the position not changing? And it's not changing. And Charlie's like going crazy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did this actually just happen? And I again like i it was one of those things where you just don't understand what's going on until it goes on the next time i streamed i had like eight thousand viewers i i think i had like over a thousand subs it the prophet <laughs> the prophet the prophet nickname yes. stuck and it it's crazy that it's still it's still a thing and this was like back in 2020 uh so i'm obviously very honored i like that nickname a lot and uh, i think it's 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 wholesome and you know obviously this is just complete dumb luck um, and you know, it was, it was an, just training Charlie in general was an incredible experience that, that really helped me grow as a streamer and knowing Charlie was awesome. And, uh, yeah, that was a huge watershed moment in my, in my streaming career because eventually the, the numbers subsided a little bit, but ne never entirely. Like, I think it, it did really propel me forward and, and it put my name on the map. But that must have also been a moment that cemented your decision to to pursue this path. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was like, I'm in the right industry now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, amazing. Fabi, any? I mean, we've been going on for a while. I think we covered a lot of things. I'm sure we'll at some point have round two with you. But uh, you know, uh, Fabi, any last questions? Yeah. Well, this this might actually be like too too big a topic to uh, to be the last one, but. Uh... But what do you think is like the future of online chess? Because we've seen chess grow so much in the last few years or, or change, grow, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but chess has really changed a lot. It's moved a lot more online. Uh, do you think that's going to continue? Do you think it's going to be 
like the online chessing will grow and perhaps at some point overtake the over the board chessing. Um, what what do you see the future of chess looking like? So I think I, I what I don't know, I'll start with what I don't think. I don't think, and I'll preface this by saying that my thoughts on this are not fully fleshed out. So I, you know, disclaimer, I might change my mind and, you know, this isn't sort of a final opinion piece, but I don't think that classical chess or over the board chess in any, is going to get phased out or completely overtaken. And I think the proof is in the pudding. You know, when you have a lot of these, some types of over the board tournaments, I think will die out. Like I think the ultra traditional, you know, like game in hundred hours uh, type tournament will eventually be phased out. Even though like when I was covering Tata Steel, which is like an eight hour round, it had a lot of viewers. Like there was actually a lot of interest. And I think there's a group of people who really do like the contemplative kind of meditative experience of watching ultra high level chess being played over the course of many hours. I think one great byproduct of chess getting so popular is that there are in, you know, there are groups of people who are interested in different things. And so it's given uh, more of an ability for different forms of chess to coexist. Um, I think a lot of people view this as a zero sum game that, okay, online chess is growing. Therefore it has to replace something. I don't think that's entirely true. Um, I also think that over the board interaction is very approachable and is almost a spectator sport. Like when you had the uh, chess.com global championship finals, yeah. even though it wasn't, it was like in the middle of over the board and online. And that might be a form of chess that that grows, you know, two players sitting in front of each other, that, you know, physical quality where you can sense the player's reaction. And I loved watching the player's behavior after the game concludes. People love that, you know, even my mom was tuning in for that, you know, because that's that's universal, that's emotions and that's interaction between competitors and everybody loves that. So I think that might be an avenue which continues to expand um, something like online tournament followed by an in-person finals yeah. uh, might be might be an avenue to explore. But yes, I think Blitz Chess, Blitz tournaments and Bullet tournaments are expanding rapidly. Even something like Bullet Brawl, the fact that there's a Bullet tournament every week that I can play in is an absolute, with prizes, is a dream come true. Um, so I don't think that online chess is going to blow out to the point where it's where it's going to, you know, replace over the board chess. Uh, and there's very serious questions that, that, that are attendant to uh, an online chess boom you know obviously cheating is a really hot topic and it should be um and there's other hot topics uh like the question of distribution of prizes you know what should be what should prizes be in online tournaments and what should they be in over the board events but i think there's room for everything in short yeah yeah cool no that um encompasses a lot of things where do people uh, find you, Dania? Tell us a bit about that to uh, to end the show. Where can we find you? I am a bit of a Luddite in the sense, not I don't actively despise social media. It's just not my, you know, I'm not a judgmental person at all. I let people do their thing. I personally um, am not very, I'm not active on Twitter. I surf Twitter sometimes. I have a Twitter. I have an Instagram. I don't post on social media accounts at all. The easiest place to find me is Twitch. I stream uh, I would say average of four to five nights a week uh, at twitch.tv slash GM Naroditsky. Um, I have a YouTube channel that is updated actively. In the last a month or so, I've been putting out about a, a video every five, six days. Uh, usually it's more frequent than that. It's usually once every two or three days. You can just find me at Daniel Naroditsky. Uh, if you search that in the YouTube search bar, my channel will come up. I would be honored at a sub subscription, but I try to create an environment where nobody feels pressured to support in any way. If you like what I do and you want to subscribe and do me a solid, that's great. If not, that's that's great too. Um, you know, I'm fulfilled either way. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you can find me commentating uh, a lot of events, including the finals of the Speed Chess Championship, which will be coming up this coming week at uh, twitch.tv slash chess. Uh, I'll be doing that with Robert, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So those are the main avenues that you can find me, or you can find me wandering the streets of Charlotte in a, you know, in a, in a craze like Paul Morphy. Uh, so maybe you can stumble upon me at the local Trader Joe's. Awesome. Awesome. Where I spend a lot of time. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thank you very much. And we'll link every everything down below in the description. So um, check those out. Make sure you support Dania. Thank you. Great mainstay in the world of chess. Uh, a good friend to uh, to us. And uh, hope we'll have you again on the podcast. You, it was a You guys blast. are awesome. You guys are awesome. I mean, this was so, so much fun. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you, Christian, are an amazing presence in chess. And Fabi, I mean, the fact that you even do a podcast and share your thoughts uh, in, in a setting this informal, I think is a great privilege to every player who likes chess, including myself. So this was a great honor. I, I uh, can't wait to be back for part two. And uh, uh, I, had, I had a blast. Awesome. Cheers, guys. Have a good one.